All right, one of the things that we're going to talk about today, obviously, is, is the uh, incarnation. And in theological terms, it's often referred to as the hypostatic union of two natures of Christ. And that can be kind of hard to get our minds around. It's, it's hard to sort of conceptualize what we mean when we say that Christ was 100% human and 100% God. How is it that he can be a divine man at the same time? And the explanation for that, um, about as fine an explanation for that as you're likely to hear, uh, will be on the podcast that will uh, drop tomorrow. I'm up on my podcast lingo. It's not like being posted or it drops tomorrow. So anyway, uh, but if you don't have an opportunity to listen to that or um, or just choose not to, I thought this morning since uh, Hayden was in town, I would have him just sort of recap or give you sort of a, a synopsis of, of that explanation that is uh, probably more fully given in, in the uh, podcast or Maybe he'll give a fuller explanation now. But anyway, uh, Hayden, if you'd come and talk to us for a few minutes about the, what we mean when we talk about the incarnation, what are the implications of, of that statement and how that plays out. So, All right. Good morning. Good morning. I'm dropping stuff. All right. Uh, so I, I do appreciate you all allowing me to step up and speak to you uh, for a few minutes. Uh, because as we come into the Christmas season, there are a lot of words that we tend to throw around. Uh, I say throw around because we have a tendency, due to their familiarity, to use them flippantly even as, as Christians. And a significant part of my worship and, and, and my belief and understanding of worship is that the depth of your worship truly can only go as far as your depth of your understanding. The depth of your worship really can only go as far as the depth of your understanding. We're all in different places with that, and, and nobody has ever arrived at the full understanding of any of these points that, that we'll discuss this morning. But as we come into the Christmas season and we consider the incarnation, the reason for the season, we ask that often, what's the reasons for the season? The birth of Christ. And what does this mean? Truly, what does it mean? And so I wanted to take just a few minutes to look at that together. When we read in the Gospels, each of the Gospel writers has their own point that they want to drive home to the reader concerning the person of Christ. Matthew, Matthew is concerned with identifying Christ as the son of David. Specifically, this is the Messiah, this is the long-awaited Savior the promised Messiah to God's people. This, he is going to be the fulfillment of all these promises. He is going to be the covenant keeper. In Luke, it's important that we understand that he is the son of man. That's why his genealogy goes clear back to Adam, identifying that this is not simply uh, the, the one born from uh, the line of David, but this is one born directly 
from the line of Adam. He is true humanity. And as uh, I know that my dad has already discussed with you all, Mark has quite a bit to say, although not possessing itself a birth narrative, has much to say about uh, the, who Christ is. And in John, I think we find, and it's, there's a wide consensus, the most theological of the Gospels. Because John doesn't start with Christ as who he is in the covenantal context. He doesn't start with who Christ is as far as his humanity. He starts from eternity and says, in the beginning was the word. That Christ as God. And we have in the Christmas narrative both of these things, or all of these things rather, coming together in one person. And sometimes I think we forget and stop to ask ourselves the question, how can this be? What is it that's happening? And the, the reason that I ask the question is because we we say 100% God and 100% man, and this, this is true, but if, if we're honest, how often when asked, well, what does that mean? I don't know. I mean, it's fine. It, it, it's true. It, it's a difficult question. This is not meant to be a simple thing. This is a, this is a, uh, a significant, eternally significant event. What, though, does it mean? When we say that he is one person with two natures, we have to be precise in our language here for our own sake and for the sake of others. We must be precise in our language for our own sake and for the sake of others. Because I don't think anybody in this room wants to accidentally fall into Christological heresy. That would be bad. I would, nobody, nobody wants to be uh, intentionally uh, a heretic, and sometimes the way, sometimes if we're not careful, the way that we can speak and think about these things would actually be in line. It's like, well, we, we may not actually want to say this or to say that. So what do we mean? Well, sometimes it's helpful to start with what do we not mean? Before we get to the explanation of what does it mean for one person and two natures, what do we not mean? Because a, a cursory reading of, of church history would tell you this question has been investigated and looked at for well over 1,800 years, really since Christ's, uh, even uh, very shortly after his death and resurrection. People have been asking this question, who was this and what does it all mean? And from the very beginning, there was a, there's a whole list of ancient Christological heresies that over the centuries are reworded, repackaged, made to look better than they actually are. And if we're not careful, we might actually find ourselves, you know what, I actually kind of think in this category. Well, we'll start with the obvious. We don't want to fall into the trap of Gnosticism which is going to be a denial, ultimately, a denial of Christ's humanity, his physical form, right? Because that which was physical uh, to the Gnostics to the, was going to be evil. If, it, if it, is, it is lesser, if it is of the flesh, and it is therefore evil. And certainly we don't mean that. We want to avoid another heresy of docetism, which says, well, he appeared 
as an illusion to possess flesh, a denial of the humanity. Luke would have a lot to say about that. He was very much a man. We want to avoid one of the trickier is this idea of monophysitism. Monophysitism is simply the idea that, oh, he was human, he had a body, and he was divine. But these natures, what it means to have a nature, they were blended together to form a new nature, uh, this, this mixing. And so everything that Christ did and was and uh, everything he said was done with this nature of part man, part divine, in a, in, a, in a blended mixing sense. Well, that, and we'll look into that, why that doesn't work. Certainly we don't mean that. So what is it that we mean? Well, we have to consider the language that is used uh, early in church history, in the, about the 5th century. The Council of Chalcedon met and sought to answer these questions because of all these Christological heresies that were on the rise. You had those who were doubting his humanity, those who were doubting his divinity, or those who wanted to offer some explanation that falls short of the biblical revelation. And so they came together and they established a few things. What is it that is meant by one person with two natures? Well, this idea of person, uh, some of the struggle that we have is The way we use person today is very different than the way that that language would have been used during the 4th and 5th century. Person, right, the idea of person is the self-conscious, self-asserting, active subject. So what it means to be a person is if you are a self-asserting, self-conscious, active subject. You and I are persons. But a nature is going to be the totality of powers and qualities that constitute a being. The totality of powers and qualities and attributes that constitute a being. That is what is meant by nature. So when we say human nature, we are thinking of those things that are necessary to what it is to being human. And when we speak of a divine nature, we think of those things that are necessary to being divine. So then the question, there is one person in the incarnation, and that is God. The second member of the Trinity, God the Son, is always and only the one person in the incarnation with two natures. This is sometimes a controversial, if we don't establish what we mean by the language, it can sound odd to the ear to say that in the incarnation of Christ, there is not a human person. I'm not a Gnostic. I am not adhering to doctrine docetism. There is a human nature. Christ possessed every quality and power and attribute that is necessary to what it is to being human. 
which an important note in that. We often say, to err is human. Well, not according to our nature. Sin might be a universal problem because we all have it, but it is not necessary to our humanity. That was not the original design. That is not the original intent. And so Christ carries everything that is necessary to being human. No sin nature. No issue with sin. But the, the implications of this are pretty staggering. All the limitations associated with human nature Christ possessed. The examples start to become mildly humorous whenever you think of the human nature. Whenever you stop and realize Christ had to learn how to walk, how to speak, how to eat. Christ had to grow in stature and wisdom, as we are told in Scripture. And it's very interesting to think, what does What does that mean? What does it mean that the single person in the incarnation, that is God the Son, had to learn to walk and eat and speak? How can that be? The divine nature did not need to learn to do those things. And this is why it's important that we don't think of it as a blended nature. Or, even worse than that, there is an idea of what's called canonic Christology. And that is the idea that, coming from Philippians, when it says that he poured himself out, that somehow in the incarnation, well, the divine nature was set aside. That he put aside divinity to take on humanity. Well, that's a problem. That's a problem on a number of of fronts. First off, we are told in Hebrews that it is through God the Son that creation was made and is actively sustained. That process did not stop with the Incarnation. All the work and power and might and glory that God the Son possessed, possessed during the incarnation. The divine nature was in no way limited, stopped, or shortened in any capacity by taking on the human nature. Everything that it means for God to be God, he retained in every imaginable way. God cannot die. The divine nature cannot die. The divine nature does not grow weary. The divine nature is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, but the human nature is none of those things. The human nature is limited in knowledge. It is limited in power. It is limited in energy. It is limited in all the ways that you and I are. And it is staggering to think, how can this be? In one person, but with two natures, the hypostatic union. Even in the songs that we sang this morning, he is the son of David. He is the son of man. He is the son of God. 
the divine nature. Remember nature not being the person, but the divine nature. Possessed. And what I don't mean by took over, but took on the human. It contained the human nature. The human nature did not, in turn, contain the divine. That is an impossibility. What is finite cannot take on what is infinite. What is limited cannot take on what is limitless. And so, when Christ acted on earth, he acted as the God-man. One person. Everything that Jesus said, thought, did, was all done by one person. Everything was done by God the Son in a human nature, perfectly, in perfect communion with the Holy Spirit, in perfect alignment with his Father's will. And we can say because of this, when we stop and really reflect, what do we mean? One person in two natures. And begin to unpack, and, and my dad and I and uh, some, of, some of my friends will, late at night, shoot back and forth about some of the implications of this. Because if, when you really stop to unpack the glory of what it is that has happened, there are lots of questions. Did Jesus ever trip and lose his footing? I'm sure he did. A human nature. Right, you know, the um, or the story that I know you've heard about. Whenever uh, little ones might ask, "Did Jesus have boogers?" Yes, he did. Right. A human nature, everything that is necessary to being human, he took on. But never was the divine nature limited in any way. It didn't cease in its work. God, the Son, did not cease to be omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent. He was and will remain always those things. That, that's part of what it is to be divine, by the way, is to be immutable in all that you are. So in the hypostatic union, we can say of Christ, Son of David, we can say of Christ, Son of Man, that is, Jesus Christ, the Holy Incarnate, second person of the Trinity, Son of God. One person with two natures. So, for this Christmas season, as you hopefully reflect on these things, and, and when I say a lot of ink has been spilled on this matter, a lot. Thousands, of not pages, but volumes written on those who came before us, marveling at this mystery. So, as we're told in so many of our favorite Christmas songs and hymns, come let us marvel at the immaculate conception, the hypostatic unity of divinity and humanity. Come and let us rejoice. Come and let us worship. Thank you.
Thank you, Hayden. I appreciate your insight. And uh, I, my brain hurts. I don't know if you're, to think about the, the magnitude of the impossibility of what is so clearly outlined in Scripture and in truth. Um, it's hard to get our human minds around it, but uh, what a glorious thought. Yeah, I'm glad that we can rejoice even when we have, um, when we struggle to fully comprehend. Uh, but we do catch again a glimpse of God's glory. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things that uh, Hayden and I talked about uh, last night and this morning was I, I, I told him I had a sermon, so... <laughs> Anyway, I didn't say it was a short sermon, but it, it, it will be. Let, but let me just share with you a couple of things that I want to talk about out of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, as we approach this time of year where we marvel and rejoice, and if we're like the wise men, it says, when they, set, when they saw the star, they uh, rejoiced. I just love this phrase. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, that, that, that's an emphasis, emphasis uh, in two different ways. Rejoiced is, if that's not enough, then they rejoiced exceedingly, and if that's not enough, with joy, and if that's not enough, great joy. So there, there is something that stirs the hearts and the emotions of these wise men. Uh, as they see the star, it says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy because they follow the star to get to the Christ child. And then it says when they come into the house and they see the child with Mary, his mother, they fell to the ground and worshiped him. And then opening the treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We make the mistake of thinking because there's only three gifts named that there were only three wise men. The truth, in fact, is that there were probably a, a whole sort of... Uh, entourage of wise men. They, go, they gave three particular gifts, but there were probably many more than the three that came to worship Christ. And so we, we, we have in Matthew this Christmas story that is anything but peaceful. So, you know, if, if, if you're one of those people who end up, for whatever reason, you just end up thinking to yourself, if you don't say it, you end up thinking to yourself, oh, I just, oh, I hate the holidays. Now, I'm not like that. I, I love Christmas and whatever, but I was, I've been at the store before, a couple of years ago, and the person in front of me is checking out, and the cashier's like, Merry Christmas, how are you? And he said, I hate the holidays. Like, wow. Well, there, there's, you know, some Christmas joy just spreading it all everywhere he goes, I guess, you know. Uh, well, so how's your Christmas going? So how much, how's your holiday going so far? Is it all, you know, Peace and quiet and rest is all calm and bright. I mean, isn't that what, that's what we want, right? But the fact of the matter is, sometimes for many in the holidays, it's so busy and there's so many obligations that it's anything but peaceful. It's anything but calm. In fact, uh, we become so obligated that if we're not careful, we will become more guilt-ridden during Christmas than any other time. Somebody gives you a card... What do you immediately, oh, I, I can't believe this person thought of me. This is wonderful. Thank you. No, you're, if you're like most people, your immediate thought is, oh, I don't have my cards done. Right? I didn't get my cards out yet. Everybody else has got their cards out. And somebody gives you a gift. And for whatever reason, you didn't get them one. You don't think, wow, this person thought of me. This is what, no, first thing you think is what? 
I didn't get them anything. And so now just add it to the list of obligations and places I have to go and, you know, people I got to see and things I got to do. And I'll just put it on my shopping list and we'll hit 15 different stores. It'll all take care of itself. And at the end of it, we're so exhausted. Everybody has these moments. Everybody has these kind of obligations we put on ourselves. when really the only obligation of Christmas is right there to follow the pattern of the wise men and to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. That's your obligation. To recognize in the incarnate deity, to recognize in the Christ child salvation, to recognize in Him the deity of wonder of who he is and rejoice exceedingly. But if you have married children, then you know how things can be because when you gather and you want these peaceful moments with family and friends, and let's stop right there, family, right? If you have married children, then you know all of a sudden you, you get this extended family and then you have extended family that happen to live in the same city and so you, you immediately begin to have overlapping uh, traditions. Well, we always do this, but my side of the family does that. And they say, well, then my, you know, my brother's uncle's mom does this on Christmas Eve. And it becomes so complex. I'm convinced that, the, you know, planning the invasion of Normandy has nothing on what it took to get our plans this Christmas figured out. Because you have so many people that, that cherish certain traditions and you want to, with all your heart, to make everybody happy and you want to to you know you want to do it all but you can't and so you know inevitably inevitably somebody gets hurt and you know is this call it can be very alarmingly anxiety producing because there's so many obligations well i guess matthew is your gospel Matthew's your Christmas story. Because there is nothing calm about Matthew's story. There's nothing peaceful about Christ's birth in Matthew. In fact, Matthew's uh, story is really uh, the story of Joseph. Because four times, Joseph is warned in a dream about something. Oh, you remember how, the, how his birth story starts, right? He, he traces his lineage all the way back um, to, the, to the founder of their, well, the, the covenant of David, which because at this time, the greatest theological problem for the Hebrews was the failure of God's covenant with David, you find in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where he promises David that there will always be somebody on his throne. His kingdom would have no end. And by the time you get to the first century, it's been 400 years since anybody's heard from God at all. And all the Hebrews think, well, God has changed his mind or is he, he has failed in his covenant. But it caused this deep-seated problem in the Hebrew community that what happened with David's covenant? Did God lie? Well, the rabbis came along and said, no, what happened was we rebelled, and so it, you know the deal's off the table now. The only problem with it, and they knew this, if you go back to 2 Samuel 7, it was not a conditional covenant. He just puts it out there. This shall be. This is what I will do. No ifs you do this or if you do that. It was 
I will make for you a house. I will make for you a dynasty. On your, of your kingdom, there will be no end. And then he uses the language about the rising of the sun. That's how dependable this covenant is. And bases it on nothing David does. And yet it seems by the first century to have failed to come to pass. And so that's why Matthew writing to the Hebrews, writing to the Jewish people starts with the genealogy of Christ back to David because he wants to say this is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. This is the great Davidicator. So, but then he says, and here's how his birth happened. There are no, <laughs> there are no uh, wise men, or yeah, there are wise men. There are no shepherds. They're not low in the fields watching over their sheep. There's no great angelic host singing glory in the highest. It's a, well, it's an ill-timed discovery that his betrothed, in other words, his fiance, is pregnant. Then they have a conversation, I'm going to paraphrase because uh, for the sake of time, they have a conversation that I'm sure you did not go well. Now, not everything that happens is actually recorded in Scripture. You have to, you have to infer some things because it just simply says it was discovered and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. In that day and time, if you were engaged, you actually had to get a divorce to undo the engagement. He wanted to do that quietly because he didn't want to disgrace her. So something tells me that between being discovered and him deciding to divorce her, there was an exchange of words. She said something, he said some things, she said some things, he said some things. And I, I just cannot think that that was a good conversation. It did not go well. He did not believe her. And after all, would, would you have? So he decides he's going to put her away. Now, he is a kind enough person to put her away quietly because in that day and time, in, in that particular region... Uh, his other option would be to have her stoned, um, which is unthinkable, but in that culture he could have, but he's a good man. And he decides to put her away quietly for the betrayal. Well, this isn't a Christmas story. That, that's not good. And so he is visited by an angel in a dream that tells, her to take, tells him to take Mary as his wife, and he does. Then the wise men show up. And I love the, uh, the verse in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, the, the wise men come to see Herod the king. They ask him uh, where the king that's been born, for we saw his star. And it says in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And the word means disturbed. And all of Jerusalem with him. It wasn't just Herod that was disturbed by this news of a supposed new king. And you think, what is the context of that? Who are the wise men? Why in the world are they even coming over here? We won't get into a whole lot about theories about who they were. But we do know this. The people to the east, if you go back and, and look at history, there was an empire to the east. You have to understand Palestine is the farthest eastern reaches of the Roman Empire. It's sort of the outlying part of the Roman Empire. It's a buffer zone so that they can control the Mediterranean Sea. 
That's why they wanted Palestine. They didn't really care about the land so much. It's just they needed that buffer zone so that they control control the Mediterranean. And so whenever somebody didn't do so well in a political office, they got appointed to the farthest reaches of the empire, all the way to the east. And that's how Pilate ends up there. It's like a punishment job. You're going to go rule in Palestine. That's how bad you did. You're going to go rule in the east. Well, if you look at history, across the Arabian desert, over in the area of the Tigris and Euphrates, you had the Parthian Empire. Constant threat to Rome. And here are some Parthian wise men that come over looking for the king. This is a day and time when alliances were made. Okay? Allegiances traded. And so when the Romans hear of this, they are not happy. Well, Herod knows they're not going to be happy when they, they find out about this supposed new king. So that's why he talks about it. Well, says that uh, angel warns them in a dream not to go tell Herod where the babies were. You know the story. And then an angel tells uh, Joseph again that get up and take the child. Basically, run. Get up, take child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. So he has the dream. He gets up in the middle of the night. It's literally one of those scenes from where he says, pack your things, we're leaving. When? Now. That same night. This is not Christmas, peace, joy, and calm. This is running around for your very life. So they go, and they're there. Uh, we don't know how long exactly, but by the time Herod figures out that he's been duped by the wise men and they didn't come tell him where to find the child, he issues an order that every child to and under should be destroyed within the city. And that's a fulfillment of a prophecy. Why does Matthew include that detail? Well, because this is in the memory of the people. Right? He's writing to the Jewish people who this horrible thing happened to or to whom this horrible thing happened. So this is in their memory. They, people know this event. I mean, you don't forget something like that. I don't know if they had a name for it. You know, like, it's like the Holocaust. You don't forget the Holocaust. Well, when, when Herod issues an order and babies two and under are being destroyed throughout your whole city among your people, that's not something you just slips your mind. That's like 9-11. You don't forget that that happened. And so Matthew tells them why it happened. And you know what you had up until that time? A bunch of conspiracy theories about why it happened. But Matthew tells them why it happened. He's trying to clarify for the Hebrew people that this is the Messiah, and here's how you know. You see all these things happening according to the prophecies, and no less than a dozen times, more like uh, 14 or so, um, Matthew points out how Jesus' life fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. And his whole point is to convince his own people, that the Messiah had come in Christ. So, they're in Egypt. They've run for their life. Then Joseph has another dream. Now they have to go back 
I, I don't know about you, but if I, if I was Joseph, I would be kind of afraid to go to bed at night. <laughs> you have another, another dream. You have to get up and move again. So they go back. And then he was warned in yet another dream not to go back to Jerusalem. So he ends up going um, down into Nazareth. And he waits for the word of God to, till it's safe. So Jesus is called a Nazarene. Again, to fulfill prophecy. Well, that's, uh, that's Matthew's Christmas. It's hurried. It's not calm. It's not peace. It's run for your life. And yet, there is this moment, sort of in the middle of it all, where they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Have you learned to rejoice exceedingly? even in the midst of all the running and errands and obligations and disappointments and, you know. If we don't learn to rejoice exceedingly and with great joy in the midst of the harried sort of context of life, you may find that you never get to rejoice because life has a way of never really slowing down. And we think, oh, it's just bad this time. It's, I mean, if you're like most of us, Life always has something, right, on the table for you. Always some obligation, always something that's just... And if we don't learn to see Christ and take those moments, even in the midst of it, to rejoice exceedingly with great joy, well, you just might miss out. So my encouragement to you this morning is don't think you're the only one that uh, sometimes for whom Christmas is a bit busy don't think you're the only one that has certain struggles because I, th I think they're kind of universal, at least in the sense of the Western uh, context. We all have those. But let go of your self-imposed obligations just long enough to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And you might find that if you do, others around you will too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the time we've had to, to think about, to deeply consider uh, the miracle of the incarnation. We thank you for who you are. And we thank you that uh, you were willing to take on a human nature. Father, that you're willing to be obedient. And not just obedient, but obedient to death. That you would die for us that you, as the author of life, would come to know death so that those who were dying might live. Thank you, Father. You are good. You are holy. And we love you. In Jesus' precious, holy, wonderful name we pray. Amen.